Good morning. Turn, please, to Matthew chapter 13 in your Bibles, if you have one. Um, if you're a guest with us, you've picked a, a good Sunday um, because we're, we've been working our way through, through Matthew. And this is one of those little breaks in his grand scheme of his narrative. Matthew actually was a bit of a literary guy. He was very intentional in the way he structured his book and his narrative of the life of Jesus and to accomplish certain goals. And um, we're at one of those breaks of those new points. So in like four bullet points, I can catch you up on everything you've missed uh, through Matthew 1 through 12, to which the church goes, why didn't you just preach it that way? Um, because there's winning and going through the forest, you know, so you can see all the trees too. Um, so Matthew 1 through 4, Jesus established, uh, excuse me, Matthew establishes Jesus's identity. This is where he's come from. This is who his people are. This is who his tribe is. This is his kingship, his ancestral kingship line. Um, all of those things. This is who he is as a person. This is his backstory. And at the very end of chapter 4, around verse 17, and a few verses as they go on, Jesus, uh, Matthew begins to, um, Matthew has this verse, Matthew 4, 17, where he says, from then on, Jesus, from then on, the rest of the book, okay, very important. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, turn the other way, because the kingdom of God has come near. Okay? That, in a nutshell, is everything Jesus preached. Okay? And uh, in Matthew 5 through 7, there was a three-chapter-long sermon that we slowly worked our way through that defines what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. If you repent and join the kingdom of heaven and join the kingdom of God, this is what is required for you to do that in the Beatitudes, and this is what it looks like. Uh, this is what your life looks like, the last half of the Beatitudes, and this is what your religious life looks like. It's what your relationships look like. It defines the citizenship of a person who's in the kingdom of God. That's his teaching. Okay. Then, chapter 8 and 9, Jesus starts to bring the realities of the kingdom of God. If it's near, show us its impact. And he heals, and he loves, and he heals, and he loves. That's, he's bringing the reality of the kingdom of God to bear on people's problems in Matthew 8 and 9. And then in Matthew 10, Jesus equips his disciples to go out and be and do to, to be Matthew 5 through 7 and do Matthew 8 and 9, okay? That's what he sends them out to do, kingdom ministry. And it's right there where Jesus' disciples start going out that we see fissures form, okay? So you've got John the Baptist who wavers for a hot minute. You, you, the crowds are skeptical, the Pharisees and the other religious leaders begin to plot Jesus' death. The most holy, reverent Pharisees, okay, who love their Bible, love their Bible, begin to plot Jesus' death, okay? So Jesus' message is true. Jesus' message hasn't changed, but what's happened is people's receptivity to it is beginning to shift, Okay? Their receptivity to it is a mixed bag. You have doubters, you have admirers, you have skeptics, you have opposition. You've got a mixed bag. Which lands us in chapter 13 where Jesus um, teaches about the nature of his kingdom. It's a perfectly placed 
uh, set of parables from, from Jesus that Matthew puts here because the question is, well, if Jesus is who he says he is, we're kind of like John the Baptist. Why don't they believe? Why don't they believe? Why don't they believe? Why don't they believe? If everything you say is true and people generally do gravitate toward truth in some shape, form, or fashion, eventually we all actually sit in a chair because we believe it's true that it's going to hold us. If everything is, that Jesus says is actually true, why are so few, at this point, really only 12 people, not even his mother, not even his brothers, as we saw at the end of chapter 12, and that we're going to see it again at the end of 13, are following Jesus. If it's true, why so much division? Why so much opposition? And so Jesus is going to say to us today, let me tell you something about the nature of my kingdom. Okay. And that text is Matthew uh, 13. And we're going to look at, uh, for the next three weeks, we're going to look at a series of parables. And today we're going to look, your Bible probably has the parable of the sower as a title. Uh, Matthew did not give it that title, nor should a publisher. I'm not even sure why it's there. It should be the parable of the soil. Because the sower is really indifferent to the story. What matters is the soil. So we're going to read verses 1 through 9, and then Jesus' explanation of the parable in verses 18 through 23. Let's read together. On that day, Jesus went out to the house, out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat down while the whole crowd stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables. And here's one of them. Consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some feed seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it. Still other seed fell on good ground, produced fruit, some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty times what was sown. Let anyone who has ears listen. I want to just pause there and, and make sure you see the, the circumstances into which Jesus was preaching this text. Verse 1, Jesus went out of the house, was sitting by the sea. Remember, sitting is a position of authority for teaching. And so many people... So many people, so many people that he could no longer sit and teach. He had to stand and get out into a boat in the water, right, so that no one would surround him and so that he could continue to teach. And what happens when you get crowds? What happens to the Roman soldiers when they see crowds? What do they think? Insurrection, civil unrest, right? This is a problem. So that's the throng that's there. These people want to be around Jesus, and we've talked about all the reasons why. And every, you know, how it isn't a crowd. Like I remember, if you ever like, um, oh, what's, what, where was I? I was with Trey. Trey was ten, and I took him to the city of Chicago for his ten-year-old trip. We hopped on a Chief Southwest flight, stayed a couple of days, and did all things Chicago. Which, as I've now learned, he hated the whole trip. Because he's not an urban guy, he's a suburban guy. And Chicago is very urban. 
And one thing that you can count on in an urban environment is a crowd, right? So we would be, we were walking, you know, just down the, down the street, doing, you know, to, to going on some, going to one of the museums or whatever that I took him to that he hated. And then, um, because I'm a stellar father who knows his son so well, he'll love Chicago. He'll love Chicago. He did not love Chicago. Um, so <laughs> he's at a country club for a college right now. He did not love Chicago. So we're walking through, and there's a crowd starting to, to form. And do you know when your crowd's starting to form, you have one or two possible responses. What's going on over there? Am I going to go to it? Or am I going to be like, no way, I'm going away from it, right? Which one? Which one? Would you go to it? Almost every time I was like, you know, that would be a terrible idea. But let's go see what's going on over there. What can possibly be wrong? Surely we can get close enough to at least see. Some of that is going on in, in Jesus' environment. And he stands back. He's got this huge throng. And he says, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a parable. And then he ends it in verse 9. Let anyone who has ears listen. Speech over. No explanation. No clarification. Let me tell you a story. There was a guy, and he sowed some seed. Some of it fell on the rocky ground. The birds took it. Some of it in, on, the, on, the, on the side of the road. Some of it in rocks. It grew up really for a hot minute, but then it was gone. Some of it was among thorns, but it got choked out. And some of it made it. And it was incredible fruit. Way more superior run. It's incredible. Have a nice day. To which the disciples say, why are you teaching them this way? In verse 10. So Jesus goes on to explain the passage to them, to the disciples in verse 18. So listen to the parable of the sower, says Jesus. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom, underline that phrase, please. The word about the kingdom. And doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path. And the one sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. But he has no root. It has no root and is short-lived. When distress, persecution comes because of the word. Because of the word. Immediately he falls away. Now the one sown among the thorns, this is one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. But the one sown on the good ground, this is the one who hears and understands the word, who does produce fruit, yields some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty times what was sown. You guys may have noticed that in the last two or three weeks, Luke and Abby got glasses. Did y'all notice that? The gene pool still working. Holly even has glasses. I'm sure Trey and Jonathan are not far behind, right? To the degree that we can keep up with them, Luke and, now and, or Luke and Abby Jane are now wearing glasses, okay? Which was a surprise because last year we had the hours checked and it was perfect and then we go back this year and it's like, whoa, you need glasses. 
Very, very weird. So they can see better. They look cool. It's awesome, right? It's great. And praise God for insurance. Their eyes and my eyes are in great contrast to Holly's grandmother, Betty, who uh, is 89 years old this last week. And because of macular degeneration and because of her age, she can't see anything at all. Okay. But sometimes she can, I mean, you have to write letters like that big. You don't want to shoot it like phone numbers. Big mama, trying, just say this to your phone. Call six, one, and you have to write it out like on huge pieces of paper because of macular. Nothing can, can solve that, right? And there's just nothing you can do. So for the rest of her life, she will not be able to see any better than she does now. If anything, it'll just keep getting, getting worse. Okay. Now, I say that up, set you up for this. You don't have to have, no person in this world has to have theological or spiritual blindness. You don't have to. Our understanding of who God is and what he is doing can be very clear, and the teaching method that Jesus chose to bring clarity to the nature of his kingdom was a parable. He was direct and clear in other sermons, but often he told a parable to bring that clarity. Parables are like eyeglasses. They're a literary lens that allow us to see something clearly to correct our distorted vision of the truth. Okay? That's what the parable is for. But parables can be confusing. Kind of like progressive lenses can be disorienting when you put them on for the first time. You know, there's a little bit of vertigo associated with it for a little while. And this is because parables are not interpreted for us by the teacher. Jesus did that for his disciples, but he didn't do it for his audience to whom the parable was directed. Isn't that interesting? They are left in our minds and our hearts to chew on, to contemplate. They have a meaning. They can't mean what you project onto them. They have a meaning. But sometimes that meaning is not easily arrived at at all. You have to process, chew, contemplate, mull. Okay. They are different than Rorschach tests. Y'all know what a, a Rorschach ink blot is? Have you ever seen these before? I showed this to Jonathan this morning. I said, what do you see? And he says, somebody's sitting, uh, getting an x-ray of their butt. <laughs> That's what he said. And I said, That's interesting. And he goes, why? What is it? I said, it's a Rorschach test. It's what you make of it. It's what you see it. I saw two elephants. I know what Ralph sees. You see the, you see the x-ray of somebody's rear end. I know that's exactly, what, that's exactly what you see. Do you see elephants? That's good. Probably. A Rorschach test, right? Named after Herman Rorschach. That's the Swiss psychologist who invented them. He, he would hold up these images and he would, he would just gauge your reaction. What do you see? And he would write it down. And based on what you gave him out of 10 or 20 images, he would uh, analyze them and give you psychological analysis about you. Okay? But the meaning of you is found in your perception of yourself. Okay? That's not what a parable is. It's not what the Bible is. The parables contain actual meaning that you must see and respond to. You don't determine their meaning. You find its meaning and you, re you respond to it. Okay? 
You conform to it. And parables want to be understood. They're trying to grab your attention. They're trying to stimulate you. They're trying to get you to act. They're kind of like dogs and cats who will not easily let you get away without petting them. Like mine. Okay? They just come... Luke, thank you, buddy, but you got to hold it tight. Okay? Thanks. They compel you to do what they teach, but they don't explicitly tell you what they mean. Roman wants to go out. You know what he does? He comes and sits at and just stares at me. He doesn't lay down, because that's when he's like, I just love you. Don't leave. But when he sits and stares at me, it means I have to pee. Okay? He doesn't say I have to pee, but he, he's communicating to me in that way. Parables are like that. Okay? You've got to do the work. You've got to engage with it to understand it. And there's no history, and there's no context, and there's no language barriers. It's just the parable. You don't need a Bible dictionary. You don't need a Hebrew dictionary or a Greek dictionary. You don't need a commentary. You just need the story. You just need the parable to do the work. But you've got to do the work to figure it out. Okay? It requires humility. It requires humility. Jesus taught in parables to appeal and to enable hearing in his people. And if the parable will find a willing response, then you'll get more explanation. But if you, if you don't give it a response, then the message will just be gone. You'll be like, what? Whatever. Okay. So with that in mind, I want to ask you a question. Did you find that parable appealing? Does it pique your curiosity? Do you want to know what it means and what you're supposed to do as a result? Have you already assumed that you know what it means? And you've already mentally moved on to communion. Oh, wait, we're not. We're, we're doing communion this week. That's next week. That was in the script. <laughs> Maybe you're thinking about lunch. All right? This is a parable And so, therefore, it's meant to engage you. And if you're not engaged, I'm going to ask you to engage. Okay? What is this parable about? Well, I'm going to tell you. Because Jesus told us. This is a parable about the nature of the kingdom of God. This is a parable about what we're doing here. Okay? And people's response to it. It's a parable that clarifies what God is doing, how God is doing it, and how you should respond to it, how you participate in it, and what the results are going to be. That's what this parable is about. If you want to know at the highest level what the kingdom of God is all about and what it means for you, just read the parable of the soil. That's what it's about. And I want to tell you two things about the kingdom of God from this parable. Number one, The kingdom of God is a kingdom of the word. It's a kingdom of the word. You can see this in verse 19. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't, underline the word, understand. right? So Jesus equates seed being sown. He he equates it with the word being distributed and to some degree understood or not understood along the spectrum. That the kingdom of God 
is a kingdom of the word. Okay? Language, words, sentences, ideas, proclamations, these things create a word. When God confused the language of those trying to build the Tower of Babel, he didn't just create languages, he created kingdoms. Information, the word, that is true power. The kingdom of God, says Jesus, goes out as a word that is heard, understood, followed, and results in fruitfulness if it finds the right soil. But it's a kingdom of the word. Okay? And this is in stark contrast to all other forms of kingdoms that this world has ever or will ever know. Most other kingdoms are not kingdoms of this word. They are kingdoms of force. Okay? Prior to democracies, force took a militaristic, militaristic um, shape, right? Philistines, we're coming after you, says to Israel, and they take them by force. And you have to fight it back with your kingdom, with force. But even democratic societies, even democracy is a form of force. It's a kingdom of force. It's just not physical force. It's idea force. Right? If you can get 50.1%, which is apparently <laughs> not a given anymore, depending on what state or county you're in, right? We're getting it right down to the nub. We're counting every little one very slowly, very carefully. If you can get 50.1% to vote for you, then you can more forcefully advance your kingdom over the 49.9 in a democracy. It's a kingdom of force. Remember that in your heart's engagement with politics, that you're a part of a kingdom of the word, and politics is a kingdom of force. And your participation in it cannot replace your citizenship here. Okay? The kingdom of God is a kingdom of the word. Okay? We talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about doubt. John the Baptist was doubting. His expectations weren't being met. Why? Because the kingdom of God wasn't coming with a winnowing fork, with a sword. It wasn't coming with force. It's going to come. Revelation is true. And that will be a day of force. And there won't be any questioning it. Right now, it's a kingdom of the word. It's a kingdom of the gospel. Okay? Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, the kingdom of God is like a seed. It's not like a boulder. When a boulder comes to hit the ground, it smashes the ground. But when a seed comes, it comes in very quietly. The boulder transforms the ground, revolutionizes it externally, but a seed falls into the ground and revolutionizes it internally. A boulder comes in and does it suddenly and coercively, but a seed comes in and does it organically, gradually, gently. A boulder breaks the land, but a seed transforms the soil into a garden or a forest. It transforms soil by reorienting and rechanneling its energies, its nutrients, its minerals into a life-giving process. But a boulder doesn't really change it. It just breaks it with its power. 
A seed transforms it completely and transforms it more completely, not superficially like a boulder does. In the same way, human kingdoms, whether you're talking about Alexander the Great or any president the United States has ever had, that can only superficially affect people. It's done through coercion, but the kingdom of God gets at the truth and it penetrates the heart. The kingdom of Jesus is a kingdom of the word, not force. Okay. Point number one. Point number two. It cannot be ignored. It's a kingdom of the word, but it is a force to be reckoned with. Okay. You have to respond. It's seed, and your heart is soil. In some way, you are responding to it. The only proper response, according to the parable of Jesus, to the word of the kingdom of God is a complete and radical reorientation of your life. You were this, and the seed fell, and it fell by the grace of God into good soil, and you radically and reoriented your life into this. Now, you can have a hard heart that's been trampled by sin. You can have a verse 19 heart. You can have a Romans 1, 18 through 32 heart. If you really love sin like that, the word of the kingdom can just bounce off of you like rock, like seed in the pavement on the shoulder of a road. You can have a shallow heart. You can have a verse 20 through 21 heart. You could be attracted to the idea of the kingdom initially. You can go on a camp or a retreat, get baptized, maybe join a community group, but then you realize that being a part of the kingdom of God costs you something with the kingdom of this world, and you're like, I'm out. That's what verses 20 through 21 means. You can have a strangled heart. This is a verse 22 heart. Listen, this is the one, says Jesus, who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. This is the why it's harder, why it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man get into heaven right here. This is the bigger barns of Luke 12. This is the camel in Mark 10. Okay? You can have that heart because let's face it, winning the $2 billion lottery sounds amazing. Or, God willing, you could have an open heart. You can have a heart that hears the word of the kingdom of God and receives it to the point that it is fruitful remarkably fruitful, 30 times, much less 100, 30 times what was sown. How'd that for an ROI? The only heart that ever receives the truth of the gospel and is saved is the heart that opens itself up to Jesus and his teaching and and it falls in and it bears fruit. Paige Benton Brown, it's a Weston Community Church, teaches a Bible study that she puts on YouTube on Wednesdays, and once she's finished, it comes off because she doesn't want a platform. 
This is what she says. What she said recently. She said, "The only thing you need to have an open heart is nothing." But so many people don't have that. The only thing you need to have an open heart is nothing. But many people don't have that. They'd rather have a choked heart or a hard heart or somewhere. The last thing some people want is is nothing. And that's what's required. Remember the Beatitudes. Blessed are the first one, poor in spirit. For theirs is the what? Kingdom of God. It's right here again. An open heart. Rich young ruler that I referenced a minute ago, he turned from Jesus sorrowfully because he was unwilling to sell his riches. He seemed to be open to the gospel. He had even asked Jesus how he might be saved, but the riches were choking him and he was unable to leave them in order to become Christ's disciple. And Jesus remarked how difficult it is for rich to enter God's kingdom. And the disciples said... Well, who then can be saved? Because they're not, they're not saying that rich people should be able to get in. They're recognizing the serious nature of the heart problem of a human being. And Jesus' response to them, what's impossible with men is possible with God. And it's possible for you if God does the work. What you need to do is have an open heart. You need to... Bring nothing to the table. And he'll put the seed and it will result in fruit. Because that's what seed does in good soil. Isn't it interesting that three out of four, there's potential. But only one is their fruit. And the, the one where there's fruit brings absolutely nothing to the seed but soil. It brings nothing you got to let it all go. That is a significant invitation to you today. Have an open heart. Have a receptive heart. And then marvel at the fruit of the kingdom that can come from that. Okay? Don't just... You need, we need to move past merely hearing the words, even with joy, and following Jesus around like some sort of fangirl. You're not going to look like a giant oak without putting down deep roots, okay? And that's, that requires you to empty yourself, to be full of Him, okay? Um, Abby Jane has a, um, she's got her mom's love for the garden. And we have a shed on the back of our property. I said property like we have acreage. It's a third of an acre. Okay. So we have, we have a shed on the, it basically is the backyard. Okay. (laughs) So we have a shed back there. There we go. And um, because it was put there by the prior owner, um, there's all kinds of gravel that was laid there. And when he was pouring, when he was putting a foundation, he was putting, you know, footers down. And so there was gravel and all that to kind of get it, get it level and set and keep the footers in place. There's lots of underneath the soil and the soot that's built up over the years. There's some gravel back there. But Abby Jane has worked very hard of her own accord. And she's even convinced the neighbor's kids to help her um, over the last, of this last year to rake out all of the gravel that was in that soil and make it to where shade plants could thrive and grow, right? No? 
Shiloh's not helping? I thought you, she was at one point. Okay, my point is, that's what she did. Man, I tried really hard. Okay. But she's done, my point is, she's done the soil work to create this environment where fruit can thrive. She's done it. You can do, that's, that's what the parable is meant to do. It's make you think, shh, Luke, thank you. It is made for you. It is told to you to go, well, what kind of soil am I? That is very uncomfortable. But it is very necessary to enjoy God forever. And reap the fruit in this world. Okay? And there's one more thing that I'd like for you to see. And this is for us as a church. I do not have time, but I'm going to take the time. So I, one of the things that I do at, jo- at my job is I watch other people work. It's great. It's like middle management. You guys are doing great. You know, make sure you bend at the knees, boys. All right. You know, it's like a union supervisor. It's so great. So I mean, we have this thing that we study for curriculum in our Sunday school classes, right? And that's, this is where I work. And, but I don't like... Like, I steward the, the thing, the, all, all of them. So I'll read everything that's made. And it's fall asleep every time because it's hard to read 13 Bible studies at once. It's really hard to do that without falling asleep. And, but I, but it's, there's more to curriculum than writing, right? There's, I mean, it's, there's all kinds of stuff. And so I steward these brands and these lines all the way through every one of these processes. And one of the biggest ones is the marketing. And so, like, how do you know if you're winning when you're talking about something? How do you know that you're making a difference when you're marketing something? So we have this process at LifeWay that I really have come to enjoy, and I use this kind of language all the time. So we, we talk about how do we measure success for, when it comes to marketing our, our Bible studies. And we say, well, we're, we, we call them lead measures. We measure with something that we lead with, and we're measuring something at the end. We call those lag measures, lead and lag. So lead measures might be, we, need, we know that if we can get 50,000 people to download this trial of a curriculum, that that, over time, statistically, we know that that converts to 25,000 churches buying our curriculum, something like that. So, so we have these lead measures that we chase after, and then the lag measure is money, right? It's revenue. It's how much money did we make? How much, and then we look at how much we spent and how we spent it and how much we made. So we have these lead measures on the out front. And the real fruit, in the end, the fruit of our labor is cash, right? Just like any business, okay? Just like your household, okay? So lead measures and lag measures. Do you know what we love to count in the church? Lead measures. Man, we love lead measures so much. We love lead measures. We say, how many people can we get here on a Sunday morning? That's, a, that's one lead measure. How many people we get to an event just once, and maybe some of them will come to us on Sunday? That's even a farther out lead measure, right? 
or how, it, let's make it more seed-oriented. How many gospel conversations, this is a, these are good things, I'm not making fun, these are, good, these are good lead measures. How many gospel conversations can our people have this week and report back on them on a Sunday, and we'll keep count of that lead measure. How many gospel conversations first join the church? Then that means we got to have 10,000 for every 30 members we want to grow. Like, we love to count lead, you know what, there's a really good lead measure baptisms. You know, so often, if the parable of the soil, the parable of the soil is true, baptisms aren't a, are not a lag measure. Look at baptisms like the finish line. And I'm looking at this parable, and baptisms are rocky ground for far too many. Baptisms, small group attendance, Giving are not lag measures. They are lead measures. You know what a lag measure is? A Christian funeral where everybody in the room knew, well done, good and faithful servant. Because three out of four of these caught wind, but two out of those three weren't really Christians. And, probably, and if I'm understanding Jesus' interpretation correct, they were baptized, had joy, but then, but then, but then. Let's be a church. Let's be a church that counts Christian funerals as much as we count baptisms. Lag is what matters. Let's don't be a church that's complicit in letting each other think that an initial response unaccompanied by actual fruit is saving faith. Have an open heart, produce the fruit, and let's measure for fruit. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, I'm terrified. um, I want, we want fruit. We want hearts that are fruit hearts. Hearts that, that are soil that is just going to produce all kinds of fruit by your, by your grace. You know, Lord, you're, I skipped over the verses, but, but they're, they're very applicable right in this moment. Because your, your disciples went back, went to you and said, hey, why are you talking to them like this? And your answer is descriptive of reality of people's response to your, to your kingdom. The, the reality is, is that as this kingdom of God is going forth, people are going to have different responses based on the condition of their hearts. But the parable is meant, the parable is meant to, to push and to challenge, and to beckon, and to call, and and to challenge, and to confront, and to demonstrate that if we would come with empty, empty, empty of self, if we just come empty of self, that the seed of the kingdom of God, which is a kingdom of the word, not a kingdom of force, it would find, that's good soil. Good soil is, I got nothing, I need you. I got nothing. Oh, Lord, may that be true of us. And may we measure the fruit. 
In Jesus' name, amen.